The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Burning Man Project. Common side effects include moderate to severe confusion, partial enlightenment, utopianism, surrealism, situationism, and wild-eyed enthusiasm. If you have frequent thoughts of a transformative nature, you should continue listening immediately. Ask your life coach if you are spiritually healthy enough for this podcast. Welcome to the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat. One of the most fundamental human experiences, one we've all had, is awe. Whether it's looking at a clear night sky or standing on the edge of the ocean, listening to sacred music in a cathedral, or seeing a child born, somewhere along the line, you've experienced awe. It fills us, inspires us, frightens us, changes us. Without these experiences, we are less human. But modern society seems designed to keep awe at bay by keeping our experiences manageable, safe, and predictable. These can be good things, but what are we missing? Our guest, Dr. Kirk Schneider, is a practicing therapist and one of the leading existential psychologists in the United States. And he says that the experience of awe has valuable things to teach us about the human condition, lessons we can only learn if we're willing to be vulnerable in the experience of the unknown. We talk about awe in ritual, art, and nature in this Philosophical Center podcast. What, what is awe in a psychological sense, and why is it important? Well, I define awe as the humility and wonder or sense of adventure toward living. And to me, in, in, in accord with my own experience and with the studies I've done of, of awe, it's a, it's a very important spiritual concept. And, and really rather unique because it it embraces the the fuller ranges of our thoughts, feelings, and sensations, intuitions, and not just the fuller ranges, but but the paradoxes of our lives, and not all transcendental or spiritual views really em- embrace the paradox paradoxes. Uh, that we are both fragile, vulnerable, small, but at the same time uh, capable of great boldness and venturing out and wonder. And so this is this is the beauty of the sensibility of awe, is that it really addresses both aspects very vividly. According to the dictionary, it's it's a commingling of dread, veneration, and wonder. And so there you you get that encapsulized. Really, it's uh, it's a very full and and whole-bodied experience of of life and existence as a whole. In that sense, I, I think it's you know it's not fragmentary like like some spiritual views just focus more on the the blissful or uh, unitary sense that one has in experiencing life in the cosmos but uh, this really tries to cover our, our humanity in that relationship which is not always blissful and serene it's obviously uh, uh, sometimes struggling and fearful and sorrowful. 
And what awe does is it legitimizes that aspect of our of our experience and our, our experience of of life. And and it also implies continual discovery, because if we're small and fragile, or for acknowledging our fragility and our smallness, we're also opening to the prospect that something new can arise, that we can be surprised, and we we can be in continual discovery, rather than, you know, sort of fully fulfilled or, or fully, uh, I guess, satiated would be another word. But here's, here's something that puzzles me, is that if, if we're talking about awe as a basic psychological state, something that all human beings have the capacity for and is, in fact, arguably an important part of their lives, it's still not <clears> something <throat> that is, is typically thought of when we think about human psychology. We, we think about, you know... Uh, sexual drives, we think about neurotic behavior, we think about anger and, you know, tribalism. Uh, in today's world, we think about uh, neurotransmitters and, you know, neurons firing and fMRI scans, but awe doesn't seem to be, to be talked about all that much as a psychological state, as a component of our psychology. I agree with you, and I see this as very problematic. I also see it as part of the culture, the current culture of mainstream psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, which focuses on or tends to focus on only the overt and measurable aspects of human behavior, and not so much the much subtler qualitative, affective, kinesthetic, intuitive aspects, which are much harder to capsulize in terms of units or numbers, it risks normalizing life on the surfaces. William James had a term called the, the surface show, and he thought too much of normative culture and even psychology was dealing with the surfaces and not, not the deeper questions, the deeper sensibilities of, of people. And so it risks uh, overemphasizing what I would call the, the quick fix or instant results uh, mentality of our culture. Another way to put it would be uh, uh, the efficiency model for living. Or in my, my newest book, I, I talk about it in terms of the machine model for living. So much of our lives today are focused on and moving toward a tendency to both act like and be replaced by machines. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly we can see this in many young people's uh, addictions for, uh, you know, smartphones and texting and instant messaging. Just, constant speed. Yeah, go ahead. It, it reduces the whole of the universe to the, the problems that have easy answers. Yeah, and, and we see that, I think, a lot in psychology, unfortunately, is we have a kind of a problem-solving psychology that gives us some temporary you know, relief of, of symptoms, for example, or ways of making uh, relationships more functional, making our work lives more functional. 
but not necessarily raising questions about the meaning and purpose of those work lives or intimate lives or or the 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 beauty of them the the terror of them <laughs> you know again the the fuller experience of of living it it wants people it wants to fix people whatever that means instead of helping them find something meaningful and engage with it and and flourish in yeah i mean another way to put it is that uh, we seem to be moving more and more toward uh, creating a hyper regulated world a world without vulnerability. Mm. And I think this is a major problem that existentialists have certainly raised throughout the decades, but is even more acute now, where we have this ability to to virtually, and I don't use that word lightly, yeah. to virtually uh, eliminate many vulnerabilities. And this, I think this, this is part of the problem I was pointing to before, is, you know, if you eliminate our vulnerability, our, our, our anger, our frustration, our indignance, our sorrows, our, our anxieties, you're eliminating uh, a lot of uh, potentially rich discoveries about living and, uh, and about our whole body's experience again uh, that makes living worthwhile. Right, you're, you're flattening uh, and, the experience. You're flattening it, you're containing it, or you're, you're confining it, encapsulating it in a way that potentially could, could really you know, cut the juice out of it, the, the, the juice of discovery, of fascination, of emotional e- evolving. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is one of the, the main problems with what I call the robotic revolution. That my new book is called The Spirituality of Awe challenges to the robotic revolution and and a, a concern with transhumanism which is a big part of this this is a a very recent uh, movement it strikes me as a very one-sided direction and i don't know if you want to go into all this but i mean i i have a theory that i develop in the book about uh, a lot of what is propelling us toward this uh, kind of invulnerable elusive striving toward toward um, immortality and and that is uh what i call the chaos complex i think it's it's very deep uh, especially in the west of a historical turn away from our primal relationship to nature primal experience with nature around the onset of the industrial revolution and and this is uh a lot of this is capsulized in Michel Foucault's book, Madness and Civilization, where we took this, this sort of breakneck turn uh, soon after the, the dark, so-called dark ages, which were dark in many ways. I mean, practically a third of Europe was wiped out by, by disease and bubonic plague. And it was terrible ignorance, terrible, brutal warfare. But the question is, did we throw the baby out with the bathwater? this headlong leap toward what we call the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the point at which we saw the mad as threats to uh, that kind of linear and uh, regulated and sanitized existence that we were looking for. Mm-hmm. And so we, we segregated them uh, early on. Uh, the Ship of Fools is one example. 
that he brings out beautifully. We're trying to push them into the ocean uh, as if they, uh, you know, belonged with the chaos and radical groundlessness of the ocean. Right. So, well, if, if awe is a way of sort of short-circuiting all this, of, of reminding mm-hmm. us of the, the broader universe, reconnecting us perhaps with mm-hmm. nature, of getting out of a consumptive mindset, of, a, of, of reminding us that some problems are simply, you know, part of our existential condition instead of things that we can easily control. How do, how do we cultivate awe? What, what do we do to, to get more of it in our lives, to, to experience more of it? I mean, I think there's a sort of short-term uh, answer to that, and the short-term answer would be uh, that we could uh, emphasize uh, more time in conversation with each other, uh, face-to-face conversation, we could take time for, say, mindful meditation. I think that the whole notion of the cultivation of presence, of deeper presence, is a, is a key piece of this. Presence being a heightened awareness, kind of what I'd call a holding and illuminating of that which is palpably significant uh, within us and between us and the world. And uh, so, yeah, certainly, uh, as I say, meditation, I mean, dropping the devices for a period of time, taking some technology uh, holidays, uh, communing with nature, uh, maybe involving oneself in some uh, work of art or music. I think these are all ways for us to get in deeper touch with the bigger picture of living, with the... Again, the, the radical mystery of, of existence that uh, heightens our our delight in discovery. I, I don't know and if I don't know if you know uh, it, but you're in so many ways you're describing Burning Man. <laughs> well, uh, somewhere back there, I do have that sense. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and strangely, I've never actually participated in it, but I've certainly heard a gr- good deal about it. One of the things we're talking about this year, our theme at Burning Man, is radical ritual, and, and this question has come up. I mean, what is what, would you say that ritual has a capacity to generate awe or a place in the process of connecting us to awe? Well, definitely ritual does, and, and this is what has been so, so beautiful uh, uh, from our indigenous traditions, you know, in the world is, is again, that uh, the, the rituals that uh, have been developed uh, seem to, to really come out of a, a primal experience of nature and, and, and a sense of being awe-filled by that and, and elevated as a result, you know, uh, elevated to a bigger picture of living. So whatever we can do in the ritual that uh, connects us with a bigger picture of living, uh, and, and often, you know, nature can do that. Uh, a sense of participation in, you know, the the inexhaustible amazement of, of existence of the cosmos, and so that participation factor is really important too. I think this can happen through dance, through music, through drumming. Mm-hmm. These are all ways of 
connecting us more with, you could say, with the infinite. Yeah. It's, it's been suggested in other conversations I've had that the most effective rituals are precisely those that in some way connect us with what is greater than and cannot be controlled and cannot be predicted, that aspect of life that I think I now hear you talking about in awe, and also that it, at its best, throws you into it bodily, that you're, you're wholly engaged in that sense instead of just standing back, nodding in appreciation. Yes, exactly. But I, I want to highlight another aspect here, which is, is vitally important, and that is that in order to maximally experience the sense of awe, one has to come to terms with fear. Mm. Um, not eliminate fear, but, but be able to face it more fully. And again, I think a lot of our modern life is predicated on the avoidance of fear. Or, or the uh, even the polarization away from it. So this is this is so critical that I think the, the our best rituals help us to, in some way, with our whole body experience, face our fears, our, our perhaps our deepest anxieties. And of course, this is what great depth psychotherapy does as well over a much you know more extended period of time usually. But but still, the ritual can provide a staging ground or a a sacred space, a, a comparatively safe space for people to go into those areas of themselves that they, they had formerly blocked off, and they'd usually block them off because they were associated in some way with uh, trauma and, and ultimately uh, groundlessness. Uh, so not even necessarily trauma, but groundlessness. And and in most of the Western cultures, uh, we haven't been very good with raising people to commune with or be present to the, the groundlessness of our existence, which is inherent to our lives if we really look at them in a in a very stark. Uh, authentic way. I mean, that's we're suspended in the groundlessness of existence. So, these rituals, uh, having the safety factor of community, of support for the kind of the range of feelings that can come up in the ritual, uh, having a, a shamanistic-like figure or somebody who can provide a kind of a focal point for that support. Uh, are all important to helping people to feel the freedom to uh, more fully experience uh, whatever the ritual brings in terms of the form. Mm -hmm. Is this strongly suggests to me this this the fact that vulnerability has has repeatedly come up and now fear yeah. has come up that yeah. that really effective rituals are not benign in that sense. That's right. That's right. There's always risk with those, and uh, and some some element of danger, I would say. You know, probably less so the more the community has practiced this, you know, since uh, their very earliest origins and have, have helped children to grow up with them. Certainly, through through that history, people learn to. Uh, 
habituate or, or to feel fortified within the ritual setting. But I think because of their scope, probably the, the most vivid rituals bring this out. Uh, there, there is some element of danger. Mm-hmm. And there's some element of ex- exhilaration, I guess. Uh, mm. You know, breathlessness. I think there's a fascinating dynamic developing out of this, one which I think is, is tremendously relevant to, to Burning Man and Burning Man culture, that on the one hand, you, you need to engage with this in a non-benign way, and on the other hand, that you can minimize the, tr- the risk to the individual, not by uh, making the ritual safe, but by having a community that, that supports people who are going in and coming out of the ritual or going through it, through it together. That, uh, that the answer yeah. to this is not to create a society with fewer risks or a ritual that, is, that does not address vulnerability and, and carry with it the, the potential for, for fear, but that you have a, a, a group that goes through it together and supports each other. Yeah, I would say that's that's a big part of it. I, it's not so much the form of it, I think, as as the communal support, the philosophical or mythological support that's that's co-created. The, the psychological structuring of it is important, that it be thoughtful. There's, there's a wisdom that, that's really involved, and also, of course, uh, the place. Uh, I mean, the degree of vulnerability of the people involved, too. I mean, uh, for Burning Man, I don't know if there is some uh, screening process at all or or if there's some uh, help for people, support for people who who are, you know, experiencing overwhelm. But that that could be helpful in Mm -hmm. circumstance like that. Well, occasionally people describe try to describe Burning Man as a as a safe space, and I, I always push back mm-hmm. on that that it's it's not a safe space. But what we do is we mm-hmm. take your risks and we lubricate them. We we make it <laughs> we make it easier to take your risks, and then when you fall on your face, we make it easier to get back up. Okay, so it does sound like important supports are in place. It's, it's very, it, while recognizing risk, it's, it's yeah. communally generated. There's a, there's not so much a, a formal mechanism of it as a, a uh-huh. self-organizing community of people who are all very supportive of the stupid things we do, um, <laughs> and, and help each other both in the doing of it and then in the reco- the recovery from it. I think, and I and I think that's that's a crucially important. That's I, I would say that's where a lot of the the psychological impact people experience comes from. Well, that sounds beautiful because it sounds very organic too. Like it's not it's not overanalyzed. It's not overly cerebral. It's somehow you've you've built a, a an intuitive sacred space together that I'm sure involves you know a degree of planning, but it's not not weighted down by that. Yeah, that's actually why Burning Man objects to being referred to as a as a festival because. That implies huh. a kind of a kind of passivity as you go from one experience to the other and 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 witness it and you know and now now band such and such is playing on stage three and tomorrow you'll you'll see you know DJ so and so performing at stage four that on the contrary it's a this is a, a co-created experience that arises out of the fact that everyone is a participant and everyone is engaged in doing something. Well, it's interesting you mentioned festival also because actually my son has done a. <laughs> 
a senior thesis on the music festival as a, as a metaphor for contemporary cities mm. in America and, and finding that although music festivals and festivals can be extremely enriching and diversified and so on, they can also have a kind of falseness to them, a kind of mechanical aspect or commercial aspect, I should say, that is not all that organic. It's it's often manipulated by uh, greater powers, by you know, corporations or financiers, what have you, that have their own motives, material profit motives and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a slippery idea, uh, festival, and what that means today. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting that uh, Burning Man is is countering that, and in in that way, it's it's sort of uh, more sounds like it's more in tune with the rhythms of of life. There's not a hell of a lot prepackaged, in uh, at least in the most intimate spaces of life. Right, right. Yeah. I, I I like to describe Burning Man actually as a, a process of applied existentialism because <laughs> yeah. you go and there is no commerce in the space outside of a very limited uh, range. You can buy coffee and you can buy ice, and there's there's nothing else. There's no merchandising. There's there's no vending. Um, it's it's a it's an environment in which the gift is prioritized. But so there's there's no real way to. To win at it, there's no schedule that you have to follow unless you and your community have agreed on it. Um, you're, you're put in this place, in this distant environment, for you know, for however long you've decided to be there. Generally, a week, and you have to decide, okay, what's really important to me? What do I actually want to do now? If there's no yeah. chasing after money, yeah. if there's no you know preset schedule, you you have to decide this for yourself. Well, this is what this is what I love about just you know great conversation, like you know just what we're engaging in. Or, or engaging it with with friends where it's it's not about you know achieving an endpoint or, or a solution per se it's much more about exploring it's about opening up to what's what's exciting us what we're discovering in the moment also another way I relate to it is in plunging into an ocean <laughs> and and just playing in the waves uh, with with friends or what have you, family. There's a communal aspect, but it's 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 a a sense of raw contact, I guess. Raw contact with ourselves, with nature, mm. with being, with, without an agenda. Exactly, and and through that you can find off. Yes, you can. Yes. Fantastic. It's living off, living off. Yeah, mm-hmm. living off. That's that's great. That's exactly it. You've been listening to an interview with Kirk Schneider, practicing psychotherapist and vice president of the Existential Humanistic Institute. I'm Caveat, and this has been a podcast of the Burning Man Philosophical Center. The Philosophical Center is a Larry Harvey production with casting by Stuart Mangrum. Send questions or comments to caveat at burningman.org. Thanks for listening. And remember that belief is thought at rest. Maybe I'll see you in the dust.